Well, while they are transitioning, my friends, I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Young disciples, if you've picked up your guide over here, you're going to need to write down that passage. Today we're continuing on in our season through the Gospel of Luke, which we have titled Upside Down. You can find this passage on 877 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So let me lay this out before you. I like to tell you where I'm going before we go there. That way you have a, a better grip on how to follow along and you also have a sense of like, when is this thing going to end? <laughs> okay. So today I want to hit part two from last Sunday of the Christian call to prayer. Christian. All right, young disciples, you need that word. And once again, I'm going to walk us through the parable of Jesus and then draw out two very simple applications. They are this. First, don't pray like this guy in verses 9 through 12. And second, do pray like this guy in verses 13 and 14. So with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, that's fine. Stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Church, hear the word of the Lord. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So has anyone here ever heard of the book, The 3D Gospel? All right, at least the people that I told, have told about this book. So I was introduced to this concept first as a missionary, but it was this little book that kind of tied it all together for me. The summary is this. Each culture in the world tends to be shaped predominantly by one of the three results of sin in Genesis 3. Fear, guilt, and shame. In a fear-dominated culture, we call that fear power. Power, that is, how they seek to resolve their fear is through power. Think of a tribal sort of culture where it is very animistic, very spirit-driven in its reality. And so a person wakes up in the morning and their first thought is, how do I survive? How do I manipulate the spirit world today so that I and my family can get by. Okay, so in a 
culture shaped predominantly by shame, we would say they are trying to resolve that through honor. So an honor-shame culture. They are wrestling with this reality of how do I save face? How do I keep from being ashamed or shaming my family? How do I have honor and maintain it? And then finally, in a culture dominated by guilt, they resolve, they seek to resolve that guilt through innocence. So in guilt-innocence culture, that means they are wrestling with this question, how can I avoid being guilty? How can I be innocent? Now, it's not so clean that, you know, you're just one or the other. There's always a mixture. But can anybody guess what American culture tends toward among these three? Yeah, you got it. Guilt, innocence. Therefore, it is this. It means at all times, without us even being aware of it, we inherently are asking the question, how can I be innocent? To put it another, another way, what is the right way to spiritualize it? Whom will God vindicate? Who's he going to say, they were right, and the rest of you all were wrong? And if you become aware of this dynamic culturally rooted in your worldview, then it begins to make so much sense as to why we often polarize into sides on any given issue, and then struggle to even listen or dialogue or learn from one another. All right, we can talk about politics, sure, but I'm not even talking about politics. I'm talking about Coke and Pepsi. <laughs> right? Like, it's not just a matter of like, well, Coke is, is better because it's not quite so sweet. It's like, no, Coke is better because it's better. How could you possibly say that Pepsi is better or vice versa? Like strongly opinionated. If you think this is not true of us, just encounter someone from another culture who thinks we are loud and obnoxious. Because in comparison, we are strongly, highly opinionated. We are seeking out what is the right way. What's on the line isn't just doing what's best. It's a matter of being innocent. When the last gavel bangs on the guilty forever from the great hall of justice, whether you're a Christian and you believe that that's going to be God overseen or whether you just have an inherent sense of justice being served someday, when that gavel bangs, we want to be self-assured that we will be the ones vindicated. That's what drives us. And we saw this last week in the parable of the persistent widow. She wanted vindication from the judge for the gavel to bang against her adversary. And so she cried out day and night until he finally gave her justice. You see, our souls cry out for innocence because that's what we were created for. But our sin has rendered us guilty. The tricky thing is there are two different ways to seek out that innocence again, to restore it. Does your assurance come from God or does your assurance of innocence come from yourself? Now in today's parable, here's the simple way that Jesus says that you can tell the difference. The litmus test here. It is how you pray. How you pray. How you pray reveals how you approach God. And it shows how you seek the verdict of innocence that only he can pronounce over you. And so as you hear again today the Christian call to prayer, 
I want to begin by following Jesus' lead and saying, don't pray like this guy. In verses 9 through 12, young disciples, you need that word, pray. We read this beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, we don't know exactly who Jesus is addressing this parable to, and we might assume that it was to the Pharisees, that is, the religious leaders of that day who were especially obstinate against Jesus. But certainly, there were more people than just the Pharisees who trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. You want an example? How about Jesus' own disciples who asked him if they could call down fire from heaven on Samaritans? Uh, You think that's a little bit of seeing others with contempt because you feel self-righteous? So what's being described here isn't the stereotypical snobby person. Jesus is referring to a misdirected state of self-assurance that completely deceives you. You don't even know that it's happening. That's the scary thing about this. And so let me put it to you this way. If you read this parable today and you think, well, man, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee. You actually are. And Jesus is talking about you. Okay? Am I getting in your business yet? It's not me. It's the word of God. So here we go. He continues in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, immediately, this would have been fascinating to Jesus' listeners. The thought of a Pharisee and a tax collector both going up to the temple to pray is a very unlikely scenario. The Pharisee, yeah, okay, they are considered the most pious people in the entire nation at this time. But the tax collector, like opposite, they are considered the absolute worst people in the entire nation at this time. And it's not just because they were prone to collect more taxes for themselves, but because they were doing so on behalf of Israel's oppressors, the Romans. They were traitors. Now, I think the series The Chosen captures the sense of this well in the way that people treat Matthew, the tax collector. They can't stand him. And yet Jesus has called him to be one of his closest friends. This guy. This tax collector could have barely shown his face in the market, let alone in the temple. And so no doubt that would have caused a mob. So as Jesus' listeners heard these two men were going to the temple, here's their basic assumption. God's ears would be open to the Pharisees' prayers, but closed to the prayers of the tax collector. That's their assumption. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 11, the Pharisee, young disciples, you need that. He was the first one to pray. Standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So let's consider this together first. Why is the Pharisee standing by himself? Well, according to the design of the Old Testament temple, which I've put up a uh, diagram for you here, there were rules and spaces for how close you could get to God's concentrated presence in the Holy of Holies, that that space that's, that's tucked away all the way behind a curtain in the innermost part of the temple. In fact, only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement could go in there with a rope around him in case something went down and he died and they had to drag him out, okay? 
So that's the level of, of cut-offedness from the Holy of Holies. And so Gentiles, they had to remain in the outermost court because they were unclean and not of God's people. But the Pharisee, he has most likely left the majority of the congregants behind, both Jews and Gentiles, and he's entered directly into the inner court of the temple. And so that means he has great self-assurance that he is closer to God than everybody else. And if that's not clear by his posture, then it's completely obvious by his prayer, if you even call it a prayer. (laughs) He starts, well, God, I thank you. Hey, that's a good way to start a prayer. All right, you looking for a way to pray? Hey, God, I I just want to thank you. But two things are off here. Like, first of all, instead of you, he should say, me. God, I thank me. And second, instead of lifting his hands to heaven, he should be either patting himself on the back or giving himself a high five, okay? Because what he proceeds to say is a list of things that he has done or not done that convince him that he is innocent, and not just innocent, but a delight to God. God is delighted to hear his prayer, to have him there in his presence. So here's what he's not done, he says. He's not like other men, which, by the way, is essentially the meaning of holy. The word holy means set apart, different, okay? So he he believes he's holy because he's not blackmailed anyone. He's not convicted of a crime against anyone. He's not slept with anyone else's wife. And above all, he's not like this greedy traitor, the tax collector. Here's what he has done. Instead of being controlled by his greed, this is in his view, he fasts and tithes. In other words, he goes above and beyond what the Old Testament law requires. The Old Testament law examines him like a bright lit mirror. And what comes out is nothing but perfection in the eyes of the Pharisee. And so one scholar says that you can sum up his prayer like this. Young disciples, you'll need to write down part of this, so pay attention. God, I thank you that I'm such a great guy. (laughs) That's ridiculous, right? Ridiculous. But it's oh so easy to get there. How? By comparing yourself with someone that you perceive to be a terrible person. Or a person who is worse than you. So let me just ask, who is that person for you? Is it a child abuser? Is it a champion of socialism? Is it a white supremacist? Who who is that, that most awful person to you? Maybe I'll land a little bit more closely here. Is it the person sitting in this same room who irks you more than anyone else? Now, we might not literally say in our prayers, but it's still an undercurrent of how we reassure ourselves. I thank you that I am not like them. What is the right way? God, thank you that I'm not that bad. I must be on the right path. And here, Paul the Apostle has words for us. You see, he was in a situation among the church at Corinth where people were doing this very sort of comparison game And they were treating Paul like he was the tax collector. He was the the bar they were comparing themselves to. 
And so look at how Paul responds. He says, not that we dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're being a bunch of jerks, don't listen to them. Is that what it says? They are without understanding. It's a peculiar way to end that when somebody's attacking you and you say, when you do that, you don't understand. He doesn't fight fire with fire. Like he, of all people, right, could jump into this comparison game and wipe them all out. But like he doesn't. Why? Because when we measure ourselves by one another and we compare ourselves with one another, we are without understanding. Another translation, we are not wise. God's bar for being pronounced innocent isn't measured by human standards. But God's. And so when we fail to understand, no one is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. Or, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. When we're failing to understand those things, that's when we're comparing. That's when we are not wise. Listen, comparing ourselves, that's the way I thought of it this week. Any of you who uh, have a pool or enjoy being around the pool know the yellow float that like has a ducky on the front. You know, you talk, get that image in your head, like the ducky float. All right, Aaron, picture Aaron Kiefer <laughs> with a ducky float, except he's on the beach. Okay, he's on the beach, and sailing at him at seventy miles an hour is a one hundred foot tsunami. And Aaron, because he got ducky is looking around at all the other people going, Ha! Suckers! Y'all ain't got a shot, but I'm going to be fine. Right? Like, that, that that is ridiculous. But it's oh so easy to get there. How? A tsunami of God's wrath against sin is coming at you! And you're going to trust in what you've done or not done in order to escape it? How deceived! Revelation chapter 3. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, I got ducky. (laughs) Not realizing. See, See how scary that is? Like you don't even know. Not realizing. That you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is the scary thing about being a religious person. And if you're sitting in this room, then on some level, you are a religious person. Right? You're giving attention to the spiritual life. So heed this warning. The irreligious, they know that they're telling God, I don't need you. But the religious person can do the same thing and not even know it. And so let me ask you, do you approach God like the Pharisee? Do you seek assurance by comparing yourself with other people? Do you think that God's ears are open to you on any given day because of what you've done or not done on that day? Do your prayers leave you saying to yourself, man, I'm a pretty great guy or girl. 
instead of, man, I have a pretty great God. Like, don't be deceived today. Hear Jesus' teaching. Don't pray like this guy. Instead, do pray like this other guy. In verses 13 and 14. Young disciples, you need that word pray again. So this is our second application this morning. And I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that Jesus never just like rebukes us. But he also so kindly corrects us and sends us in the right direction. Don't pray like this guy, even though you do. (laughs) Pray like this. Go this way. He continues the parable in verse 13. But the tax collector, young disciples, that's the second person to pray, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, we talked about the position that the Pharisee took in the temple. Let's bring that diagram back up. Now, let's consider the tax collector. He is standing far off, we read, which most likely means that he remained on the outermost edges of the temple in the court of Gentiles. And so, for an unclean person who is outside the ethnic people of God in the Old Testament, this was the closest you could get to God's concentrated presence in the Holy of Holies. But here's the thing. This tax collector was not a Gentile. He was not far off because he felt ethnically unwelcome. He was far off because he felt spiritually unworthy. And if that's not clear from his position, then consider his posture. Rather than taking the normal Jewish posture of praying with his, with his hands open and his eyes lifted to heaven in confidence before his heavenly father... His head is his bowed low, and he takes his hands, they're closed, and he beats his breast. And in the Old Testament, these, these actions are typically associated with a deep sense of sorrow. And so what has him so brokenhearted? Well, we see it in this prayer. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen, his his verdict is guilty, and he knows it. The translation here isn't just a sinner, but actually the sinner. You see, ironically, he also puts himself in a separate category, just like the Pharisee did, except not as better than others, but as worse than others. He doesn't list what sins he has done or left undone because... He sees his very identity down to the core as a sinner. Are you, do you sin because you're a sinner? Or are you a sinner because you sin? You see, we can say it's all about the outward actions or inactions that make us impure before God. But Jesus looks at us and says, no, down to your very core identity. You are a sinner with a rotten heart. And that's why it flows up and out of you in action and inaction. See, this, this man is completely broken. And yet, here's the crazy thing. The thing that would have absolutely blown the minds of Jesus hears, and I hope to this day, no matter how many times you read this parable, still blows your mind. He says it in verse 14, I tell you, 
this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says this man, the tax collector, the sinner, leaves God's presence and goes back to his sinful life justified. That is the famous word that Paul uses a thousand times to describe salvation. And it means acquitted of guilt, declared innocent. Y'all, that is completely upside down. You see why we named this series that, right? The Gospel of Luke. Jesus flips what we think upside down, or we might say right side up, right? How is this possible? How is it possible that he goes down justified? It has nothing to do with position in the temple. Like it has nothing to do with what he's done or left undone. It has nothing to do with his comparison with another person. He is exalted, raised up. Jesus says, because he humbled himself, went low. What does that mean? Sounds great. Sounds Christian. What does it mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. Humility is not self-deprecation. It's really easy to walk away from this parable and think, That shaming yourself is the appropriate application. Something like this. If I tell God, myself, and other people that I am a terrible person, then God will be pleased. Y'all, this is a crazy temptation within the Reformed Baptist tradition. We go around like we would scoff at like some of those Catholic uh, practices throughout history where people are like hitting themselves. And I can't even think of what that word is, but you know, they're like hitting themselves to feel better before God hurting themselves. And it's like, wait a minute, we do the exact same thing when we go around shaming ourselves, thinking that that's the application that Jesus wants from his word. If I wallow in my unworthiness, if I declare it in the name of vulnerability, if I post it on social media, then surely I will be better than all these prideful people. It's so sneaky. Let me give you an example. Once when I was going through an event called Redemption Groups, my small group was invited to go there. We do it in family groups. We even do it in our Sunday gathering but especially in family groups, invited to confess our sins to one another. And so everybody went around the circle, and man, there was some stuff that people were confessing that was raw. You know, they went, they really went there, okay? And it it came to my turn, and I was a pastor at this time, at this church, and so my response was, listen, everybody, I'm the chief of sinners. Self-deprecation. And so later, my small group leader, I wasn't even aware of it. You know, I knew from the scriptures the thing that you're supposed to say is like, I'm the chief of sinners, Lord have mercy on me, the sinner. So I said that in front of everyone. Later, my small group leader very discernedly came to me and said, Honestly, Brad, kind of sounds like you're pretty proud of your sin. Like you're the best at it, chief. Better than the rest of us. And... uh, Like, I literally went home mortified. Mortified. Why? 
Because the way that I tend to assure myself that I'm in the right is by being the best. Even if it's at things like being the best sinner. I'm going to be more vulnerable than anybody else has ever been. And that will make God pleased. And listen, I wasn't confessing sin in that scenario. I was pretty much lifting my eyes and my hands to heaven saying, God, I thank you that I'm a pretty great guy. A better sinner than all these suckers. You see, self-deprecation is simply another prideful way to say that you don't need God's mercy. Not because you think you're too good to receive it, but because you think you're too bad. I'm too bad to receive God's mercy. I've done too much in my life. There's no way that he would forgive me. Well, what you are getting at and may not even realize is that God is unable to overcome your sinful heart because you have something that he cannot undo. And that is pride. You see how sneaky that is? Instead, listen to this, humility is a true assessment of yourself. Not too high, not too low. It comes from beholding the beauty and holiness of God. Reading His Word, letting His law expose you. It reveals the sinfulness of man every time. Think of it like standing in front of a really well-lit mirror, which exposes every flaw in your complexion. The purpose of which is not to push you away from God, but to show you your need for mercy and to lead you to Him. And so this is why we include confession in the liturgy of every Sunday gathering, even though it kind of feels depressing. Even though we're like, call to worship. Or we got to pick it back up, right? Aaron leads us there because this is the movement of the gospel. Like we have to come before God and say, I want to worship you for who you are. I want to read your word. I'm going to sing about you. Oh, crud. Your light is exposing every flaw in my, in my complexion. Every sin down to the deepest detail of my identity. Not just what I did or didn't do. And the purpose of that is, is to invite you to honestly assess yourself. But there's more to this here in the parable. Is Jesus saying that you can save yourself by being humble? No. What does the tax collector appeal to? God be what? Merciful. This isn't the typical word for mercy, but it's the Greek word halastrion. And it means... To make atonement. It's the same word used for something in the temple, actually. In the Holy of Holies, where God's concentrated presence dwelled, was the Ark of the Covenant. Does anyone remember what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Anybody who paid attention in Sunday school when you were growing up? Yes, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The law in summation. And so the two tablets of the Ten Commandments were inside the Ark of the Covenant. And what that means is there was no way that you could draw near to God's presence without the law exposing every flaw in the complexion of your soul. You couldn't come forward to God and say, I just want to worship you, I just want to sing of you, I just want to love you, but hey, I'm going to hold back what's broken here. No, 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 the law, the law would crush you, crush you. And yet what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Anyone remember? The mercy seat, same word. The atonement seat. 
And once a year, on the day of fasting, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, with this rope tied around him, and he would put the blood of a substitute on the mercy seat for the sins of the people in order to make atonement. And it acquitted them of guilt. It satisfied the demands of the law. And God, for a time, pronounced them innocent. Brothers and sisters, this is the same word used in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make Elastrion atonement, propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, the tax collector could appeal for mercy. You can appeal for mercy because Jesus became sin. He was the sinner. Everything you've done or left undone, he took it upon himself. Think about this. In the journey to Jerusalem section of Luke that we are seeing here, Jesus is drawing near, drawing near to the concentrated presence of God with total humility, isn't he? Perfect humility. Because he was perfect. Like, listen, he was God, therefore he could have marched straight up to the temple, busted right into the inner place, gone into the Holy of Holies, and just sat down on the mercy seat, and nothing would have happened. He didn't need a rope. He could have totally, totally done that because he was God. But instead, we are told that he stood on the outermost edge of Jerusalem on a far off cross where he bowed his head low and allowed the guilt of every sin to beat upon his breast until he died. But not so that you would be pushed away from God, but to show you your need for mercy and to lead you to Him. To give you an honest assessment of yourself. Here it is, first of all, that you are such a terrible sinner that only the blood of a substitute could make atonement for you on the level of God Himself dying for you. That's the honest assessment about your sin. And second... That when you cry out, God, make atonement for me, the sinner. God's honest assessment of you. His eternal verdict for you becomes acquitted. Vindicated. Approved. Innocent. What you long for most at the heartbeat of your worldview. He has to offer. And yet, not just innocent, but a delight to God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, writes this. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise 
almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us that really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God. Not merely pitied. But to, but to delight in you as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. Which is why right now you're denying them in your own head instead of letting them crush your heart. But so it is. So it is. For those of you who would put your hope in Christ and come broken in the moment of your absolute brokenness is the moment of your absolute closeness to God. Such that one day when you stand before Him, He will not only say, innocent, now get out of my sight. You cost me the blood of my Son so that you could be here. Get out of my sight. No. So that He could say, I am delighted. Okay, this is going to be weird. Prepare yourself. God is going to say, I am delighted to be in your presence. Yes, yes, us delighted to be in his presence. We're pronounced innocent. We're standing for the holy God. Holy moly, knock me down. But what can knock you down by gospel power is to realize that you will stand innocent in his presence. And he will say to you, I'm so glad to be in your presence. You were worth it. I never regret the blood of my son. Welcome. (laughs) This is how the risen Lord Jesus offers a 3D gospel to every culture. The culture that is longing to overcome fear through power. Jesus overcomes the power of sin and death so that we can survive by his blood. The culture that's looking to overcome their shame through obtaining honor and saving face. Jesus comes and takes on our shame and scorns it so that we can through him be restored to the good graces, the honor, the delight of our Father. And in the culture that is looking to overcome its guilt by saying, what is the right way? How can I land on these issues so I'll be right and I'll be pronounced innocent? We look to Christ who came and took on all of our guilt and paid the price for it rose again so that when we trust in him instead of ourselves we can be pronounced innocent and so my simple application this morning is this when you pray pray like this when you like me find yourself comparing yourself with others in the moment of a day Move yourself back to, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. When you realize that you are once again wallowing in self-deprecation, I'm the worst, God's disappointed with me, there's nothing good in me, then come back to the true assessment of yourself on the basis of the gospel, that you are innocent and God is delighted with your presence. And let it then lead you to pray with a humble heart. And you know what a humble heart will pray for? Not just yourself, but it will pray for one another. It will. 
So as we're in this season of, of prayer and fasting during Lent, and you're like, could you give us a little bit more direction about what to pray, please? Yes, the devotional guide is going to lead you to pray for global missions. It's a pretty good thing to pray for. Pray for it. But let the Spirit lead you from a posture of humility to pray for others. Pray for your family. Pray for your family group. Pray for others in the church. Pray for me, please. Pray for the pastors. Pray for deacons, family group facilitators. Pray for the people in the church that drive you crazy. There's humble prayer that says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And may that be the heart posture that we take on as we come to the table this morning. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new cup and the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today we are announcing by the mercy of Jesus Christ that all who come humbly to this table will be exalted. Our invitation here is to come forward if you're a baptized believer to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice, to take it remembering what Christ has done for you and proclaiming in that act what he promised to do in his return. There'll be gluten-free available over on this side. And if you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, we would invite you, instead of taking this, but to take Christ. He's made himself available to you. That's what we've proclaimed to you today, and that's what we hold out to you today. Be pronounced innocent today of your guilt. Receive that which you long for most in your deepest heart of hearts, your worldview, to be pronounced innocent on every level, on every issue, for all of eternity. There'll be people in the back, pastors, pray with anyone who has any need. It's season of prayer and fasting, church. Come on back. Let's pray and see what God does. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We come with an honest assessment of ourselves. Lord, if we did not preach your word, but we chose to preach something else, surely this room would probably be more full. Because to preach your word is to have a gathering of people who come and experience the searing fire of a well-lit mirror exposing every flaw in our complexion. So I thank you for the people who are here who are giving themselves to this exposure. And Lord, I pray by the mercy of Jesus that those who belong to you would walk away, not in self-deprecation, not in comparison, but exalted because you have raised them up. And what you speak over them is not shame or fear or guilt, but approval and delight forever. And Lord, I pray for those who are in this room who may be deceived thinking that they're good with you, but they're not, and your tsunami of wrath is coming justly upon them. Lord, let them not look down to their ducky float, but look up to the cross. The greatest of prices paid to show how much you love us and want 
us to be in your presence and you to be in ours. Have mercy, Lord, in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.